0: Welcome. We're glad you're here. We have about 45 minutes to talk about a big subject, a really, really important subject, cardinal to biblical Christianity. Frankly, it's blatantly biblical, and it is vitally crucial that this business of discipleship become a priority that you promote in your life and among the people that you minister to. So I know we're a full house here. Apologize for the lack of space and seating But frankly, that encourages me just that this many are interested in this critical subject. So we're going to jump right in. I've got three passages I want to highlight for you today. So start with me in Matthew 28. I I had the privilege of uh, attending Brown University. I played college football, grew up in a Christian home. And went to Brown with a new King James Bible that my grandparents had given me. I was a born again Christian going into the most uh, non Christian environment I can imagine. Uh, Brown University started in the late 1700s as a school to educate preachers, and Brown University, an Ivy League school in Rhode Island, is as far away from that as they could possibly be. And yet, during that season of a very secular, community. Uh, Really, frankly, hardly any rules. We were co-ed by room. So that's in the latter 70s is when I matriculated there. But there was a football coach who came through my dorm meeting football players. He was actually a former football coach because his coaching staff had been fired a couple of years previous, so new coaches hire new assistant coaches, and he was one of the recently fired coaches who happened to have a love for God, a love for God's Word, and a passion for discipleship. So he knocked on my door, and I was rooming with a running back from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and he talked with us, and my roommate Joe was a Catholic, and I'd grown up as an evangelical, though Arminian Christian. I knew the Lord. I just didn't know if I knew him day to day. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? You know, terrified that if something happened, I'd be in trouble. And, uh, but anyway, he came to my dorm, met my Catholic roommate and uh, myself, and that resulted in a two-year relationship where nearly weekly he would either come to me or he would come pick me up and take me to his home. And a suburb of Providence, and he and his wife and would uh, invest their lives in my life. Now, I'm at the most, one of the most liberal universities in the United States of America, and that's Brown. I don't know anybody that would be more liberal than they are, and yet during those two years, I grew more than I had grown in any time in my spiritual life. And the the reason for that was the subject that we're going to talk about today, discipleship. And I want to give you some convictions because we're going to win or lose as to whether, and what I mean by that, the health and vitality of the church is going to be a byproduct of our conviction about biblical discipleship. And so I want to start in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to give you some convictions and perspectives today that I hope will both give practical understanding. But really, I want to plant seeds of conviction that may in part be there, but hopefully I'll strengthen. And if they aren't there, I want to challenge you with regard to these convictions. But I'm going to give you five perspectives and convictions that I think will promote discipleship as a lifestyle, as a lifestyle, a way of living. The first conviction is this, discipleship requires a great commission understanding. If you do not understand the mandate and the revelation, the interpretation of what's going on in Matthew 28, you will not live discipleship as a lifestyle. It'll be casual, not intentional. Nothing in Christianity worth doing is casual. Follow with me. This is familiar, but I want to unpack some of it for you because I think there's some realities in this inspired revelation. This is Jesus. He's been resurrected. He's meeting with His disciples at the latter stages before His ascension. He's appointed a place for them to meet. And Jesus comes in verse 18 and spoke to them, that is the disciples, and says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which is to say that what I'm about to command is non-negotiable. Secondly, what I'm asking you to do is possible because I have all authority. Verse 19, "'Go therefore and make disciples.'" Now, you know this if you're a student of the Bible, but there is one main verb in verse 19. It is an aorist ingressive verb, it is make disciples. Aorist ingressive is an urgent call to action that you take right now. By virtue of the authority that is mine, by virtue of the command I'm giving you, I want you to own as a resolu- resolution and a conviction make disciples. I'm not asking you to consider it. I'm commanding you to do it. The other verb like statements in this verb or this verse are participles. Participles modify verbs, they explain something about the verb. Make disciples how, which is what happens next in verse 19, by baptizing of all nations, I should add that no exclusions, no people groups, no ethnicities, no no people. Can I say that? (laughs) I like that word, too. I just can't say it today. Doesn't matter, red and yellow, black and white, young or old, make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, baptism is an expression of vivid testimony of a transaction that has happened where one declares their trust and faith and repentance from sin, trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So the first part of how you make disciples involves conversion. There is no disciple making that doesn't involve conversion, transformation. This is leading someone by way of discipleship, leading them to trust Jesus' gospel and publicly follow Him in baptism, declaring by vivid illustration their identity with Him, His work, their death to an old way of living, their intention to live and to follow Christ. Discipleship begins with conversion. Secondly, the other instrumental participle of means is not only is they're baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, comprehensive, and then this promise, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the second instrumental participle the how is I want you to focus on conversion, declaring the gospel. To the end that people will repent of sin and publicly identify with Christ. And the second means to discipleship is maturation, maturity in the truth, teaching them, instruction. You're growing them up into Christ-likeness. So discipleship, biblically, to make disciples, means you lead them to trust Jesus' gospel, publicly follow Jesus in baptism, secondly, by teaching them to think and live like a Christ-follower. And then this assurance, the one with all authority says, I am your assistant. I am personally engaged. I am with you all the way to the end of the age. So when you are engaged in the most critical category of kingdom business, I am with you. If you do not understand this verse... You don't understand the wealth and scope and nature of biblical discipleship. Number one, it is a command. Number two, it's transacted by conversion, and it's, it's continued with maturation, teaching, and instructing. But there's another participle in this verse. It's an imperatival participle, which is to say it has the force of not-optional. It borrows from the force of the verb, but it is not instrumental. It doesn't tell you how. It tells you when you make disciples. In the Greek language, we would call it a temporal participle. While you are going, you must make disciples. Now listen, when you see go, you think missionary go. At least I would. This is while you're going, which may be going all the way around the world. It may be transplanting from here to somewhere else. But the force of this word and this statement is designed to say, in the traffic pattern of your life... Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you study, wherever you hobby or play ball, whatever neighborhood you're in, you are in the traffic patterns of your life. While you're going, as an intentional priority and conviction, you are to make disciples. Non-negotiable. You're to proclaim the gospel to the end that people are saved and they're baptized validating publicly their commitment to Christ and their reliance upon Christ. You're to teach them in the traffic pattern of your life. You're to be engaged as a gospel lifestyle priority and as a disciple-making priority in the business of advancing Christ-like maturity in them because you instruct them and you train them. You've engaged them, you're now equipping them, and ultimately you're going to promote sending them, multiplication, repeating the process. Biblical discipleship is that. So where do you go that you don't make disciples? Nowhere. Everywhere you go, you're to be a disciple-maker, which is why I like the title that they've given for this time we share together. Discipleship, biblical discipleship, is always a lifestyle. And if it's not a lifestyle, it's a disobedient Christian. Biblical discipleship was practiced by Jesus and mandated by Jesus. Biblical discipleship was practiced by Paul and mandated by Paul, Second Timothy chapter 2. Everything rides on discipleship. The maturity of your church, the influence of your life, the Christ-like fragrance and overflow in your community, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your business is a product of your commitment to this. This is transformational. This is what makes a difference. Mark Dever writes, the Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. If you're a Christian, you're being discipled. If you're a Christian, you are making disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Listen, if you want to know why the church looks the way the church does, in part, it is a product of the presence or absence of biblical discipleship. It is life on life. It is every disciple making disciples. That is the intention of the Word of God. It is the plain declaration of the Son of God, and it involves three things, conversion, maturation, and multiplication. Jesus calling the first disciples in Matthew 4, 19, follow me, that's trust and follow Jesus, Two, I will make you, that's being changed by Jesus fishers of men, that's committed to the mission of Jesus. Disciples are any and all true Christians, one who repents, trusts, and follows Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. That's biblical discipleship. Disciple-making is facilitating that as a commitment of life, All disciples are commissioned by Jesus Christ to be used by Him for His mission in advancing His kingdom. And as it relates to this seminar, discipleship as a lifestyle will never be a lifestyle until you own that conviction. This is what I do wherever God takes me. I'm committed to this. I'm committed to devoting my life and its activity To encouraging by intentional pursuit, because he said, I'm with you always. So there's this empowered by Christ reality, and that is, I will proactively initiate, listen to this intentional relationships in the traffic pattern of my life to the end that people will trust and follow Jesus and they will become more like Jesus. Therefore, influencing the world in which they live. Here's a second conviction. Discipleship is not mentoring. They're not one and the same thing. Here's a second conviction. Discipleship is more than mentoring. Discipleship involves mentoring, but it's more than mentoring. Modern synonyms for mentoring and is coaching, advising, guiding, tutoring. It's a less technical term than discipleship. It can range from casual and informal to somewhat structured, but the biggest difference between mentorship is the nature of the formality of the commitment and the relationship. There are about 50 modern definitions for mentorship, but I'm going to give you one that seems to be everybody's favorite. Mentorship is the process for the informal, that's a key word, transmission of knowledge. Keyword is informal because mentorship is, come meet me at Starbucks at six in the morning. We'll sit and we'll talk. That's valuable. We're going to have spiritual conversations. We're going to download life. And there's certainly an element of friendship organically like that in spiritual development but you have to call that mentoring. You can't call that discipleship because discipleship is not informal. Mentoring is the process for the informal transmission of knowledge, social capital, psychosocial support perceived by by the recipient. It's recipient-oriented as relevant to their life, their work, their career, their development. It involves, listen to this, informal communication. Usually face to face during a sustained period of time between a person who's perceived to have greater relevant knowledge, wisdom, or experience, that's the mentor, and a person who's perceived to have less, that would be the mentee or the protege. That's mentoring. Now, for the sake of discipleship as a lifestyle, and I'm not opposed to mentoring. I think mentoring's a wonderful thing, and men have mentored me and benefited me, but I want you to understand that discipleship, as mandated by Jesus, is more than that. It's more intentional than that. It's more structured than that. It has outcomes, its desires, and it has commitments that it makes. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So much to say in the allotted time that we have. Let me make a couple of big biblical observations for the sake of time, and we're going to dig in in part to this passage and one other. Biblical discipleship involves diversity. Diversity with a core commonality. And what I mean by that, disciples are similar, but they're different. They're Christians, similar. They have core convictions, but they are different, often different backgrounds, personalities, levels of maturity. Just think Timothy and Titus. Think Timothy and Paul, different. Think of the three and the twelve think of the diversity housed in the nature of the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of Paul. So we're not looking for people just like us, is really what I want to say. There's commonality, Christianity, there is diversity in terms of background, maturity, etc. A second big idea is discipleship recognizes equality, but with a hierarchy of priority. And what I mean by that is all disciples are valuable. But you cannot look at the New Testament and see not see there's 3, there's 12, and there's 70. And the implication of that is, though all were disciples of Jesus, 12 got what the 70 did not get, and 3 got what the 12 did not get. Opportunities, the witness of the resurrection of the 12-year-old girl through the Mount of Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, 3 got what 12 didn't get, and 12 got what 70 didn't get. The idea is is that there are going to be individuals in your life that will be closer to you than others. You're intentionally investing in a broader group, but you're more specifically investing potentially in a smaller group. A third highlight I want to make before we look at 1 Corinthians 9 is discipleship involves prayerful choosing. It is prayerfully intentional. Listen, this is a formal relationship at some level. This is not casual. This is to be a prayed about relationship. Before Jesus summoned his disciples, he prayed before he appointed or pursued. He chose. It is necessarily relational. Jesus said in Mark three, Come be with me. There's an intentional and necessary relational element. Let me tell you what discipleship cannot be. Meet me at my office or just meet me over here, we'll get together once a week, or we'll get together every other week, and somehow that will produce the outcome that is mandated by Jesus. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with once a week or every other week. There is a greater necessity for improved and advanced interface between someone you are seeking to influence for Christ, and grow up in Christ. It is a commitment. In the early church, there was a sign-on of three years of curriculum that was complemented by intentional relational community. That's how it was done. There was no other way it was done. It was not the fly-by encounters that are so common in our evangelical culture today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, third conviction. The first one is discipleship requires a great commission understanding. Second one is discipleship is more than mentoring. It is more intentional than casual. It is more formal than informal. Third conviction, discipleship requires, requires a gospel lifestyle priority. Listen, if discipleship is to be a lifestyle, it has to include evangelism. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because that's the heart of this. Paul is modeling and he's saying this is the way I am, and then he's he's giving a personal illustration of his own life and the priority of disciple making. Disciple making starts with conversion. Here's a conviction for you. Let me say that differently. This is a conviction you have to have because almost every Christian doesn't have it. One out of five Christians says it is my personal responsibility to promote and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to my neighbors and friends. Do you hear that? One out of five, two out of ten, which means eight out of ten would say that's somebody else's responsibility. That's the preacher's responsibility. That's the church's responsibility. That's not my responsibility. Jesus would deny that. He would say, no, actually, it is your responsibility. The world in which you are in, it is your responsibility to communicate the gospel that saves And in order to do that, here's a conviction as a discipleship, as a lifestyle, you need to adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. Paul represents that beginning in verse 19. Here's what a gospel lifestyle priority looks and sounds like. For though I am free from all men, which means I have no obligation to anybody, I've not taken anybody's money I've received no benefits that encumber me to do this obligatory. I'm free. For though I am free from all men, watch this. This is an aorist imperative or an aorist indicative, meaning a claim. I have made myself a slave, watch this, to all. I am a servant of everybody I encounter to the end, verse 19, that I might win the more. Now the winning in this context is not winning a race, though he'll illustrate it that way. The winning in this context is winning people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, making converts. I've made myself a slave to everybody so that however many I have won, I can win more to that gospel. And then he explains how he does it, verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So the non-Jew and the Jew, verse 21, to those who are without law, that's the non-Jew, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. So, in other words, I'm connecting and I'm communicating to those with the law, religious people, those without, irreligious people. I'm not abandoning the law of God, His moral law. I'm not abandoning the law of Christ, the law of love. I am living in submission, out of love for Christ, maintaining morality, the law of God, to the end that I can engage people for the sake of the gospel. I made myself a slave to all of them. I'm becoming whatever I need to be. Here's the key statement, without compromise. But I'm connecting with them based on who they are. Out of love. Love for Him and love for them. Listen, you do things when you have an interest in somebody that otherwise you wouldn't do. The girl I'm married to 38 years, well, I met her when she was a jogger at Liberty University, where I was studying at that time. She was a jogger. I was a football player. Football players don't jog. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why anybody wants to jog, but <laughs> run to run, don't get that. Run for a game, get that. Run for the girl, I get that. <laughs> So she's jogging around, and I went from football player who didn't jog to a committed jogger. (laughs) That's not exaggerated. I jogged until I caught her, and then I stopped jogging. (laughs) (laughs) You get that, right? I became, listen to this, I became what otherwise I wouldn't be to connect and communicate in a relationship that mattered to me. Now in your world are sovereignly placed people, and they're different. Some are religious, some are irreligious. And what Paul is saying is, I've committed to conversion, to gospel transformation, and I'm going to adapt. I'm going to connect and communicate. I'm going to become what otherwise. I wouldn't be. I'm not going to trade away my convictions. I'm going to maintain morality. I'm going to maintain charity, but I'm going to do what it takes to build a bridge to somebody who needs the gospel that God has providentially placed in my world. I'm going to adapt. I'm going to be a slave to that, which means my life does not revolve around me. It revolves around them and what they need. And then he goes on to say, And verse 22, to the weak, and I take that to be any form of weakness, constitutional, physical weakness, sociological weakness, um, you know, low in financial capacity, low in status in society. They're weak. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Now watch the end of 22. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. Did you pick up on all the alls? all of them. I did everything possible to one end that I could see people won and saved. Verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I can become a fellow partaker of it, and I take that to mean that when they transact with the gospel and I share that transaction because I'm a part of it, I'm a participant, I enter into the joy of that transaction. And let me tell you something, have you ever led anybody to Christ personally, and most Christians don't, but if you have the privilege of seeing eyes that are blind begin to see a heart that was hard begin to beat with the the grace of the gospel, when you see lips begin to quiver because somebody realized they've been set free from their sin and they have hope and they have heaven and they're they're released from their, their indebtedness, when you see that transpire, that is the greatest privilege you will ever see apart from the birth of a child that belongs to you. Paul said that's why I do what I do. Now listen to me. There is no disciple maker as a lifestyle who doesn't own the benefit of that in the conviction that that's a lifestyle that I have to adapt or adopt in order to see people saved. That's a priority. That's an everyday everywhere I go priority. That's a whoever you are priority. Discipleship is a lifestyle that involves evangelism. A commitment to building relationships with the intention, because this is relational, you got to know who they are in order to adapt and adopt communication and connections that resonate with that person. It's purposeful, it's, it's intentional. There's a second conviction, or excuse me, a fourth one in my lineup of five. We're done at 115, aren't we? Is that right? because you have a 130 in the main sanctuary. That's Austin. You don't want to miss that. Here's the f- fourth conviction. Discipleship requires a gospel-winning mentality, not just a gospel lifestyle priority, but a gospel-winning mentality. What you see in verses 24 through 27 is an athletic cultural illustration where Paul takes the winning and applies it to the principle of athletics, and he makes some key strategic perspectives uh, or illuminates some key strategic perspectives about what it means to be a winner. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Here's an imperative verb, run in such a way that you may win. A gospel-winning mentality is a mentality that says, I am going to win the loss. I've made up my mind. It's not casual. I'm not just going to win the participation award. I'm committed to seeing, listen to me, people in my life, people in the traffic pattern of my life, where I shop, where I work, where I I hang out, the coffee shop I sit in, the vacation places I, I take. I'm committed intentionally to winning somebody to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've made up my mind. It's a Resolved resolution, resolved determination. Verse 25, it involves rigorous discipline. Everyone who competes in the games, agonizomai. In other words, there's agony, there's effort. It's rigorous discipline and training in the games, exercises, self-control. This is rigorous discipline by saying no to certain things. Listen, if you were an athlete in this day, you gave up 10 months of your life and all the freedoms that you normally had in order to train. You left family and friends and you invested in order to compete. And you did that in this case for a perishable wreath. I saw a poster of LeBron James hugging his NBA first title trophy. Listen, when these athletes won their event, they were lifetime beneficiaries. They enjoyed VIP seats at every subsequent games. Their family was blessed. Their city was blessed. If Harry happened to win a game here in Los Angeles, Santa Clarita would be blessed for the rest of my, which is where I live. My family would be blessed. My city would be blessed for the rest of my life. But you know what? No matter how good that trophy is, no matter how good that reward is, it is temporary. It is perishable. When you're in the soul winning business, it's imperishable. And if you do not resolve that I'm going to win some, I'm not just running, I'm winning. And if you do not resolve to discipline yourself, to prepare and equip yourself so that you can not only share the truth that saves, answering the questions and objectives, objections that people have. If you don't say no to the lesser things in order to do the main thing, you won't do the main thing. You've got to abandon certain habits and practices and distractions in order to do the main thing. Discipleship as a lifestyle says a lot. It says it makes a whole lot of yes statements and a whole lot of no statements. You I know, mean, I'm not going to do that. Not because I can't do that, but it doesn't promote the thing that matters the most. I'm running for the imperishable prize, not the perishable prize. Notice what else Paul says by way of discipleship, and this is in the business of soul winning and soul converting. Verse 26, and I want to emphasize this. Therefore, because all that's true, I run in such a way as not without aim. I'll tell us means I have a clear target. I'm not just running around. i am actually got specific targets in my life, goals. So here's a gospel lifestyle priority. In the providence of God, in the world in which I live, there are people that he's placed in my life and in my way, and I'm going to focus on them as a goal to build a relationship. I'm not just traveling through life, happenstance or casual. I'm naming names. I'm identifying people here's a gospel lifestyle priority I'll promote with you. You pick five people out of your life that represent people you believe God has providentially placed there, either because of the geography. They live next door and they don't know the Lord. They work in the cubicle next to yours. They they serve you coffee at the coffee shop. They, They repair your car when it breaks down. They're a coach on the team that you coach with uh, their son, whoever they are, you put their name down before the Lord, and you say, God helping me, I'm going to not run without aim, I'm aiming. And I'm naming those neighbors. And I'm doing three things, because the rest of the verse says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. That has hasn't anything to do with targets or goal, it has to do with tactics and strategy. So here's a strategy with your five. This is a gospel lifestyle priority. I'm going to pray for them daily. I'm going to care for them practically, and I'm going to share the good news intentionally. That's my strategy. I'm going to commit myself to calling their name before God. I'm going to pray for them daily. Listen, we don't have time to look at it, but 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, first of all, I want you to, to pray prayers, petitions and treaties and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And then it talks about praying for those in authority. Why? So that you can live a certain kind of life. I'm going to say with maximum opportunity. Do you know what the context for everybody ought to be praying and you ought to pray for people in authority is? Do you know what that is? Because there's a God in heaven who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is a call to prayer, is the call to prayer in the context of salvation. The reason you pray for all men is nobody gets saved unless God saves them, and they get saved because people ask God to save them. In the electing grace of God, He uses the prayers of God's people, just like the proclamations of God's people, to see people transformed. That's God's heart and desire. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God wants you to pray for your neighbors before you talk to your neighbors. Here's the way I like to say it. Talk to to God about them before you talk to them about him. Listen, ask God to work before you go to work. Take a picture of your neighbors. Make an album on your phone. Flip the pictures. Pray for them. Look, whoever they are, you need to say, listen, I, I, I believe God has put me here and put them in my life, and He's given me opportunity with them. Listen, everybody needs a Christian in their life. They just don't know when. I'll tell you what, most of you, many of you are pastors and spiritual leaders. Everybody needs a Christian pastor in their life. They just don't know when, but they're going to need you. And you praying for them and building relationships with them and caring for them practically, finding ways to see needs and meet needs will enable you to have relational credibility for when you share the gospel with them intentionally. There's a couple things I want to encourage you as a lifestyle. Leverage your passions. Listen, everybody here doesn't like the same thing. Some of you, you like things that I wouldn't remotely be interested in. You read about things I wouldn't be remotely interested in, and and vice versa. I'm I'm a car guy. I I do cars and motorcycles, high-performance things. I enjoy that. Some of you drive a Prius. You don't care at all. You, you, You drive a car with no soul. Listen, I love that stuff. Why do you love that? I don't know. I love it. Some of you don't care at all about that. You know what? You don't have to worry about the uh, car guys and the motorcycle guys. I got that. (laughs) I'm up on Angeles Crest, Highway 2, Newcomb's Ranch. They gather there every Saturday and Sunday. We're in the best driving parts of the world right here in Southern California. And there are guys who go there, and guys like me can relate to guys like that. That's my world. That's my passion. Some of you into art and photography and horses and books. And my children's pastor was into board games. Go figure. (laughs) But you know what he did? He joined a board game club, and that became his fishing hole. Listen, God built you with passions you have and interests you have. I'm just asking you as a lifestyle, leverage that environment. The five neighbors I'm praying for four of them are car guys. Four. Rafi and Robert, Oscar rebuilds engines. All those guys are into cars. Let me hurry. Find, here's the second part of that thought. Leverage your passions and find fishing holes. Find places where you're going to dig in and build relationships. All right, turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm just going to give you one passage to unpack. And this has to do with the uh, fifth conviction, and I'm going to highlight it because we're out of gas and time. There's a fifth conviction. Discipleship requires a disciple-maturing strategy. Let me give you the big idea, and then I'm going to read the passage and let you see it. Influence is the product, let me say it differently, impactful influence is more often the product of relational ministry than positional authority. Now listen, First Thessalonians is Paul's letter to an A-plus church. The reason I call it an A-plus church is because he has the audacity to say of these people, their testimony is world-renowned. Verse 8, chapter 1, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, watch this, so that we have no need to say anything. I don't know what he did with that group of people, but whatever it is, I want some of that. Are you with me? Okay? That's discipleship on steroids. Well, guess what? Chapter 2, 1 through 12, is what he did. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, for our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. In other words, it was pure in content and in motive. Verse 4, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, watch this, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We never came with flattering speech. You know what flattering speech is? Telling you what you want to hear in a way you want to hear it so you get something. His way of saying, I didn't do what I did with you to get something from you. I didn't get, I didn't do what I did for you really essentially about you. I did it for him, and I did it for you, and it wasn't about me. That's motive. That's what he's talking about. But I want you to look at verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men. That's that same flavor. In other words, our motives were pure, either from you or from others, even though, watch this, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Now, that's positional. You could argue the highest ranking Spiritual officers of the day were the apostles. Seen the resurrected Lord, foundation of the church. Who's got more horsepower and position than that? Nobody. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. What's the first word in verse 7? It's the word but. It's an adversative conjunction, meaning on the other hand. I could have asserted my positional authority, but. Verse 7, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you, here's another relational word, as a father would his own children. So you've got a nursing mother, that's hyper-relational. You've got an exhorting father, that's relational. And he said, I could have been the authoritative apostle. I could have exercised positional influence, but I didn't. I behaved relationally like a nursing mother, gently caring. I went soul to soul with you, giving you my own soulish, personal influence, not just the authoritative claims of someone who has an office. So here's my big idea thought for discipleship as a lifestyle as it relates to maturing God's people. The force of positional authority. Is not as impactful as relational ministry. Spend time, spend much time. Get to know them, let them get to know you. Model it and call them to it. That's what it says, and that's what it means in verse 11. Call them to it. You model it in verse 10. You got to show people, not just tell people. Devoutly is a heart for God. Uprightly is submission to the word. Blamelessly is a good reputation with men. So you model it, verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting. That's call them to it. Parakaleo, call them to where you are. Get out in front of them and invite them to come. Encouraging is come alongside them with words to encourage them, it comforts with words. And implore means am I, you convince them, you persuade them as if what you're asking them really matters. And you do that as a father would his own children, and you lovingly and gently attend to them like a nursing mon- mother would her own children. Let me tell you what discipleship as a lifestyle is. It's an intentional commitment to build relationships that have heart, that display love, have intentionality, where you're calling people to come where you are. You encourage them as they journey there so they don't quit, and you persuade them. Marta Ruamai, convince, implore, means you got to do this. Or on the flip side, you can't do this. Verse 12, so that they may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the end game Maturation is the product of investing relationally with a life worth having. You model that and call them to live that. That makes sense? Man, that's a high-speed tour through the Bible. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity we have shared to get a glimpse of your passion and how to employ that passion to the end that there is fruitful outcomes that honor the Lord, people who are changed and transformed and people who become like Jesus Christ. Give us a heart for that to the end that people are blessed and our world is influenced. That's our desire to the glory of the master. We pray in Jesus name and all God's men said, amen. Amen. Thank you.